Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Abgenommen bedauert. Hello, Yukon 28209. Yes, this is Candy Matson. The National Broadcasting Company presents Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Just a moment. People can barge in on you at the... Now, where's that... That's better than nothing. Wait a second. Hi, Candy. Well, Mallard, my favorite foot flap. You caught me at the wrong time. Depends on your viewpoint. Shall I leave? No, no, come on in. What brings you up to Telegraph Hill, Mallard, dear? You. An interesting subject. Care for a drink? No, I'm on duty. You mean I'm being honored with an official call? Sort of. In that case, you can leave. No, seriously, Candy. Uh, You can help me, if you will. Well, the mountain coming to the mountain. Oh, you're not so large. Now you can leave. Only kidding. Uh, Here's a pitch. An acquaintance of mine, Gordon Ayers, has a little problem on his hands. Needs your help. What is this? Oh, don't get excited, Candy. He's an insurance adjuster for an aviation outfit here in San Francisco. A couple of months ago, a guy and his wife took off in a private plane from one of those little airports down the peninsula and crashed. She burned to death. Ayers investigated and okayed the claim. A rather fancy amount. But his company doesn't like it. They don't think the crash was legit. It gets interesting. Well, he has to prove he was right. He came to me. He wanted us to verify the facts. Well, we're the San Francisco police, and that's out of our jurisdiction. So? So? I mentioned you. Oh. He wants to meet you and have a little talk. If you can get the guy out of the soup, there's a nice little hunk of cabbage in it for you. Mallard, I'll take it, but there's something phony. How do you mean, Kenny? This is the first time you've ever given me a helping hand in my private eyeing. Could be. There's a reason. Could be a reason why I'm going to take the case, too. Must be the rabbit in me. I love to nibble on large hunks of cabbage. Do you recall the lyrics from that old song, the one that goes, He floats through the air with the greatest of ease? Well, that's what happened to Candy Matson, one of San Francisco's better-known private investigators. She found herself floating through the air all right, but not with the greatest of ease. As a matter of fact, it was one of the most hair-raising experiences this pert little gal detective ever ran into. Well, why go on about it? Here she is to tell you about it herself. Well, that's the way it started. Inspector Ray Mallard, an old friend of mine, and that's all I can call him, darn it, an old friend of mine, dropped by and insisted I meet this Gordon Ayers, an aviation insurance adjuster. Two things induced me to take the deal. Mallard's big spaniel-like eyes and the money angle. 
It was right after Christmas, and I was a bit short. Mallard left, and I took the slip of paper he'd given me with Air's phone number on it, sat down by Amici's pet aversion, and doodled with the dial. Good afternoon, Pacific Seaboard Fidelity. How do you do? Is there a Mr. Gordon Ayers there? Speaking. Inspector Mallard suggested I call you Mr. Mr. Ayers. This is Candy Matson. Oh, Miss Matson, yes. Happy to know you. Uh, I imagine Mallard explained my dilemma. Not in detail, no. Well, uh, the situation is quite complicated. I was wondering if we could meet and discuss it at length. Uh, can we get together this afternoon? If you say so, yes. Uh, time is of the utmost importance, Miss Matson. All right, you call it, Mr. Ayers. Splendid. I'm just leaving the office now. I have an appointment down the peninsula in an hour. Uh, do you have a car? Yes, I do. Uh, could you meet me at the San Mateo Airport, Cranston Flying Service? That's okay. Uh, about an hour and a half? Hour and a half. Fine. Goodbye, Miss Matson. This I didn't like. Already I was money in the hole. San Mateo Airport. Right on the water next to Bay Meadows, separated by the highway and a couple of salt marshes. Why should I have to meet the guy down there? Oh, me. Well, I drove down to the San Mateo Airport, found the, found the Cranston Flying Service building, and got out of the car and waited. It was a nice afternoon, so I stood watching some of the planes take off and land. Pardon me, uh, you uh, you aren't by any chance... Oh, no, of course not. No, I'm not by any chance. I'm Candy Matson. Are you Mr. Ayers? That's right. I didn't expect anyone quite so young. Well, did, did you want to talk, Mr. Ayers, or just stand there like a sea bass out of water? Oh, uh, pardon me. I want to talk, of course. Uh, by the way, have you ever flown? On commercial airlines, many times. Why? Uh, would you like to take a little hop this afternoon? Hmm? What? Well, What's that got to do with why I'm here? Plenty. It'll give you a picture of what I'm up against. In what do we fly, and who's going to be our guiding angel? Well, we'll probably fly in that Cessna over there, and I shall do the piloting. Well, I don't know. Have you been flying long? <laughs> About 20 years. Oh. And I also flew for Uncle Sam in the late mess over Germany. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Good. Let's go into the office. <laughs> Mother told me there would be days like this. Candy, she used to say, never leave the house without your parachute. We slipped through some prop wash, and I displayed a bit of silk that didn't belong to a parachute. Then into the building that housed the Cranston office. It was typical. A glass-topped counter with various flying trophies hung about the walls. Old propellers, silver cups, pictures of planes, and assorted certificates. Ayers plopped his wallet on the counter, and the chap proceeded to check him out. We went out onto the field and climbed into the plane. Then Ayers gunned the motor, and we were taking off. This is all very cozy, Mr. Ayers, but what's the idea? There's a very definite reason for it, Miss Matson. Uh, see that tower down there? Mm-hmm. No, no, down there toward Redwood City. Oh, yes, I see it. Oh, that's where we're going. About a mile east of that, there's a private airport run by a man named Folger. We're going to simulate a landing at that field. Well, I'm still not with it. I want you to notice all the physical qualities of that field as we come in for a landing. Notice the boundaries, the hazards, and the amount of free space a plane has, especially a light plane. You make me feel like a latter-day Nellie Bly. Okay, Mr. Ayers, let's go. I'll watch. Fascinated as I am by flying, I started looking around. The lower end of the bay on our left, the skyline to our right, and the bustling peninsula directly beneath us. I was shocked out of my reverie when the plane turned on its side and we cut sharply to our right and out over the bay. I thought Ayers had lost control of the ship, but no, it was just a routine bank. Then another bank right and we were nosing in toward an airfield down and in front of us. 
Did I startle you? A little. It's all right now that I know we're not playing tag with gravity. I'm going to cut the throttle now and nose in for a fake landing. I'm glad you told me. I'll know how to behave. Keep your eyes open, Miss Matson. Do you see any high-tension lines around the airport? No. Any fences, highways, or any other obstructions? No, no, I don't. Now, look, this is a normal landing. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, if I were to sit the plane down here, I'd be about a mile from the waterfront. Then if I let the plane taxi the usual amount, I'd be up by those hangars. Any problems about that? None that I can see at the moment. Look carefully. You see anything at all? Anything? No. If I didn't know better, I'd say we were in the Sahara. Okay. Then I'm going to give it the gun. Without the wheels touching the ground, we were climbing into the sky again and back toward the San Mateo airport. In less than minutes, Ayers brought the plane in for a neat landing, and we were over a very dry martini in a little spot in Burlingame. Okay, we've played charades long enough, Mr. Ayers. Cut me in on the plot. It's merely this. The man who owns that airport, Folger, was out flying with his wife one afternoon. Brand new plane. They came in for a normal landing. Just as we did. As far as I could figure out, the plane nosed over, caught fire. He escaped. His wife didn't. As the adjuster on the case, I voted straight accident and asked my company to pay the claim. They didn't like the idea. Well, you know how insurance companies are, Miss Matson. Naturally, they have to be suspicious. But in this case, their fears are groundless. Mm-hmm. What about Folger? Where is he now? Still running the airport. Now, let's get down to cases, Mr. Ayers. Just why did I get the free plane ride this afternoon? Well, I've known your friend Mallard for some time. I wanted him to sign this affidavit saying the field is perfectly safe for normal flying. He wouldn't do it. Naturally. Naturally, being with the San Francisco police. Then he suggested you. I have to have some licensed representative of the law's signature in order to clear my neck with my company. Here, you saw for yourself. Will you sign it? Whoa there, boy. Wait a minute. Feather your prop. You... You mean you won't sign it? I didn't say that. But I don't sign anything until I read the fine print. Not even for my pal Mallard. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave now, after I have another olive and what goes with it. Then I'm going home. I'll call you tomorrow afternoon sometime. But, Miss Matson, Don't start to argue, Mr. Ayers. After my second olive, I get very stubborn. This got wilder by the moment. I was supposed to sign an affidavit clearing this joker on the basis of a 30-second buzz over a cow pasture. But, oh, no. I wasn't going to get caught with my flaps down, not for Mallard or anybody. I drove home to my penthouse on Telegraph Hill, dished up a warm tub, some warm soup, and then some warm blankets, and blacked out for the night. In the morning, I drove over to California Street near Old St. Mary's. I wanted to see a good luck piece of mine, Rembrandt Watson. Rembrandt's a photographer and tops in his profession now that he's not supplying the rent for all the bistros on the Barbary Coast. Candy, my lily. Greetings. Uh, You know, if I was a G.I., I'd slug you for that. How are you, Rembrandt? Strictly, je suis très bon. That's French. Well, that's your opinion. And that's English. Oh, Dove, you look as well scrubbed as Mount Diablo after a rainfall. <laughs> There's a romantic parallel. What brings you about on this lovely day? This lovely day. How would you like to go for a little drive, Ducky? Well, let's see. I was supposed to have tea with Diogenes Murphy, the honest Irishman. But he'll understand. Yes, I'd love it. Where are we going and why? San Mateo. And for why, I don't know. Well, that's San Mateo for you. <laughs> Anyone else going with us? No, just the two of us. Oh, good. Then I shan't have to ride in the tunnel. Wait just a moment, Dove. Whilst I toss Henry me great day in a brisket or two, and I'll be right with you. Rembrandt fed his monster. We piled into the car and whooshed off to San Mateo. 
On the way down, I tried to plot a course of action. It wasn't easy. As my friend Ayers had said, the field was free from flaws, and where do you go from there? I was soon to find out. Is this our destination, Dove? That's right. Arid little spot, what? Yes. Reminds me of the recruiting posters I used to see for the Foreign Legion. Come on, Rembrandt. I want to see something. What, dear? The other side of this hangar over here. What's over there? The burnt fuselage of a plane. You can't be, girl. Your sense of the macabre knows no bounds. Can't help it. This is business. Is that the one? I should imagine so. Hmm. Quite a mess, isn't it? Ooh, what a horrible way to go. Look it over, Rembrandt. Anything strike you as strange? Wait a moment. Yes. Why are there tattered pieces of fabric on this side of the plane and on the other, nothing but melted steel frame? Good point, Laddie Book. And another thing. Look inside the cabin there. The safety belt on the other side. Intact. So it is. And I should sign affidavits yet. Wait till I see that mallard. Pardon me. Was there something you wanted? Oh, how do you do? I don't like his looks, dear. Did you want a ride? Is that why you're here? We have cubs, Cessnas, just about anything. No, no, nothing like that. Then, uh, what is it? I happen to own this airport, and I don't like people poking about. But the owner? Well, then you must be Mr. Folger. Uh, yes. That's right. Who are you? Santa Claus. A little late. Come on, Mr. Folger. Let's go into your office. I'm sure we have a lot to talk about. Folger led the way, and we went into a little Quonset hut type of building that served as the airport office. There were no trophies here, nothing but bareness. On one side was a pot-bellied stove, and on the other a mangy-looking parrot inside a cage. Folger motioned us to a couple of firehouse chairs and sat down himself in one that swiveled. Now then, what's this all about? I'm Candy Matson. This is my friend, Mr. Watson. I see. I'll be frank with you, Mr. Folger. I'm working with a Mr. Gordon Ayers of the Pacific Seaboard Fidelity Company. What? That's right. And they're holding up payment of your claim until Ayers can get a signed affidavit verifying his judgment. Ah, Fidelity! What in the world? Ah, Fidelity! Pay no attention, Miss Matson. That fool parrot picks up anything you say. Ah, ah. I must admit this is somewhat of a shock. I thought it would be. Now, is there anything you can do to help me? Pictures, diagrams, anything like that? Yes, I have a complete file, including a newspaper photograph of the crash itself. May I see them? Ah, newspaper! Ah. Quiet, you idiot! Ah, you idiot! Quiet, ah, you idiot! Ah. Yes, you may see them. I keep them in my apartment in the city. If you'd uh, care to drop by this evening, I'll show them to you. Good. Supposing you give me a call when you get in town. Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Mm, I'll write that down. Candy Matson, Candy Matson. That's right, Polly. Nine, eight, oh, one, two. I said quiet. Oh, someday I'll wring that blasted bird's neck. The only reason I keep her around is because she belonged to my wife. There. I'll call you this evening, Miss Madsen. We left the place, got in the car, drove back down the road, and ducked into a little clump of trees well hidden. Rembrandt looked at me as though I was losing my mind. But in about ten minutes, we heard the sound of a car coming from the airport. It roared past us, and at the wheel was Folger. That's all I wanted. I whipped us back to the Quonset hut, fully expecting the place to be locked tighter than a drum, but it wasn't. The door was wide open. What's the idea, Candy? I'm not sure, Rembrandt. It's just a hunch. That open door, though, means we're going to have to work fast. Work fast? At what? 
My telephone number is Yukon, not NC something or other. I have a sneaking idea that somewhere in, back in the dim recesses of that parrot's memory, I can get a key to this whole thing. Now, hello, Polly. Pretty Polly. Give me a pencil, Rembrandt. Pencil? Here. Thanks. Pretty Polly. Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Pretty Polly. Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Candy Matson, Candy Matson. NC, NC. NC, 98012. 98012, that's it. Thanks, Polly. Come on, Rembrandt, let's get gone with the wind. I left Rembrandt off at Diogenes Murphy's place on Van Ness Avenue and drove downtown. I ran into a present-day miracle by finding a place to park, then took the elevator up to the offices of the Pacific Seaboard Fidelity Company. I spotted Ayers' office and walked in. Well, Miss Matson, sit down, sit down. You're as good as your word. Thanks. Got anything for me? I may have, but first I want to know if you've got anything for me. Some little piece of information you've been holding out from your own company, for instance. I don't quite understand you, Miss Matson. I'll come to the point, then. How in the name of Kitty Hawk could you honestly pay a claim on that wreck at Folgers Airport? The plane was obviously burned only on one side, the passenger's. And also, the passenger's safety belt was still intact, tightly fastened. <laughs> You're a suspicious little thing, aren't you? Well, I'm like the insurance company. I made the same mistake myself. That fuselage you saw was a training plane. It cracked up on a routine flight. No one hurt. The plane in which Mrs. Folger was killed was sold for scrap a week after my formal investigation. Oh, well, looks like I pulled the trigger on the wrong target. Oh, well, that's all right. As I said, I made the same mistake myself. However, I don't think it was advisable for you to go down there without consulting me first. Oh, Folger called me on the phone right after you left. You've given him a fine case of the jitters. Look, Mr. Ayers, I operate in my own manner. If I saw reason to give Folger's cow pasture the once-over, that's as it should be. And if that isn't agreeable to you, you can get another boy or, or girl. Oh, now, now, wait a moment. I'm sorry. No, no, you continue doing as you are. Good. Naturally, you want to be thorough about this thing, and I can't blame you. Right. Uh, now then, what's the next step, Miss Matson? I... Well, offhand, I really don't know. I'll call you first thing in the morning. First thing in the morning, fine. I knew what the next step was, but I wasn't telling heirs or anybody. This was more than just working for a commission. I felt I was on to something now, and I was going to follow through. I called a friend of mine at an aviation insurance brokerage and got enough night work to keep me going until next St. Swithin's Day. I took my material home and started in. It was a history of every fatal plane crash in the United States for the past ten years. About eleven, I fixed some coffee. About two, I started to nod, pinched my cheeks, and snapped out of it. About four, I had some more coffee. And at seven, just as the sky dawned, red streaked across the bay, I found what I wanted, exactly what I wanted. It didn't tie together yet, not all of it, but the knot was now begun. It only needed a little tightening. I stretched out on the couch, set the alarm for nine, and woke up right on schedule. Once again, I got airs on the phone. Pacific Seaport Fidelity, Ayers speaking. Good morning, Mr. Ayers, Candy Matson. Oh, good morning, Miss Matson. How do things look? Well, if you're referring to me, awful. I've been up all night. By the way, I wonder if we could make that flight again. Flight? Yes, over Folgers Airport. Only this time, I'd like to make an actual landing. Oh, why, sure, that can be arranged. And I'd like Folger to come with us. I want him to describe just what happened as we go along. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, this morning okay? The sooner the better. I'll call him right now. Have him get a plane ready. I'll uh, meet you there about noon. Now I had to work fast. I called Mallard, explained the situation, and he agreed to get one of his radio technicians and come along with me. 
We drove back down the peninsula, and I left them both at Cranston's Flying Service, where they went to work. Then I continued to Folger's Airport. It was a little before noon, and Folger had the ship out on the runway, warming it up. Hi there, Mr. Folger. Seen anything of Ayers? Yeah, he's in the office. He'll be right out. Come on, you can get in. Okay. Here comes Ayers now. Here, let me give you a hand. Mm-hmm. You can sit up front, and I'll sit back here. All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Right on time, I see, Miss Matson. Yes. Got the plane gas, Folger? Yeah, I'll sit. Well, I guess we can take off. Here we go. Miss Madsen. What's your plan? Just do what we did before. Circle out over the bay and come in for a normal landing. Okay. I'll bank her here. Fine. Now, is there any way for Folger to take the wheel? I, I beg your pardon? I said, is there any way for Folger to take the wheel? Why, no, I don't think so. He's back there. That's because he can't fly, isn't that right? Isn't that right, Folger? What? What's she talking about, Ayers? I don't know. She must be out of her head. I'm not taking any chances with her. I'm going to set the ship down right now. The way you set it down with Folger's wife in it? So she burned beyond recognition? Why, you... I can get the whole story, Ayers. Look at Folger, white as a sheet. He's ready to talk right now, aren't you, Folger? Yes, I'll talk. I'll tell everything. Including the story about the same kind of crash in Toledo, Ohio? All right, you two, don't move. I assure you this gun is very deadly. You, Folger, open the starboard door. Go on, open it. Gordon, you don't know what you're doing. Oh, yes, I do. And neither one of you are going to live to tell about it. Go on, Folger, get up by the door. Go on. Gordon, please don't do it. What a fine rat you are, Ears. You're next, Miss Matson. Just a little too darn smart for your own good, aren't you? I should have known better than to try to use a dame for the fall guy. Go on, stand up by the cabin door. Sure. Okay. I'll stand up by the cabin door. Oh. Oh. Well, Candy girl, let's see you get yourself out of this one. I hope Mallard's still listening to this mic. Mallard. Mallard, you big dumb cop, can you hear me? I can hear you, Candy. What's wrong? I had to tap airs over the head. What do I do now? I don't know how to fly this thing. Uh, uh, wait a minute. I'll put Cranston on. Spencer, listen carefully. Take the wheel and hold it in the middle. Get your nose up a little. That's it. How am I doing? Why? Now look down at the horizontal bar at your feet. Press the left one ever so slightly... And turn the wheel left at the same time. Like this? Keep your nose up. Up. So it's just above the horizon. That's it. Keep it there. Better. Now straighten both the bar and the wheel. Slowly. Slowly. I got it. Now you're headed towards San Mateo Airport. Now try to drift off to your right a little, using the opposite technique. Better? You're doing fine. Hang on, Candy. You're going great. Now look for the protruding gadget on the right side of the dashboard. Mark throttle. Push it in about a third of the way. 
I'm falling. Mallard, I'm falling. No, you're not. Just do as I say. You're coming in for a landing. Now, don't move the wheel or the bars until I tell you to. Well, the ground's coming up awfully fast. You're coming in just right. Now, ready? Pull back the wheel just a little. No, not too much. That's it. Okay, down. Right her on in. like I did the conga from here to L.A., but otherwise I'm all right. Uh, the boys will take care of Ayers. Come on, we got a report to make. Report? Sure. I sicked you on to this Ayers guy purposely. What? Sam Mateo didn't want to scare the guy off until they solved the case, so we cut you in on the deal without you knowing it. Candy, you did it. We've got a recording of the whole thing made over the plane's radio. Congratulations, Candy. You'll get a nice hunk of dough for this. Nice hunk of dough of all the dirty tricks. Mellard, you... I... Oh, what's the use? I can't boil you out now. I'm airsick. It was a very slick deal. Ayers was a top-notch insurance boy. About five years ago, he met up with Folger. This was in Toledo, Ohio. Folger was married to a very wealthy gal, but couldn't get his hands on any of the money. Ayers hit upon a pretty little method of mayhem back there. He took out a license plate under Folger's name, fireproofed his half of the plane, also the passenger's safety belt. Then one fine day, he came in for a landing, deliberately pancaked the ship, left the motor running, and let the crate burn, with Folger's wife in it. They collected plenty. In those days, they had the names of Smith and Jones or something like that, and Ayers was the insurance adjuster. They moved on to California, took the names of Ayers and Folger, and set about to do an encore on the same old act. Folger met another wealthy gal, married her, and set himself up in the airport business. Ayers got himself a job with a San Francisco insurance outfit, and voila, they were ready for another crack-up. My suspicions were first lit up when I saw Ayers' face. He had more scars and stitches than a well-seasoned hockey player. And that broken-up fuselage behind Folger's airport, that was another giveaway. It was a test model they'd used to make sure their plans were all set. But the real giveaway was the parrot. What a memory. NC-98012 was the license number of the plane that crashed in Toledo, killing Folger's first wife. The parrot was also her pet, and Folger had kept it for sentimental reasons. He shouldn't ought to have done it, though. Because through the parrot, I traced the whole thing. It was a nice one-time racket, but they should have quit before the police tripped them up. Oh, yes, Ayers was convicted. And Pacific Seaboard Fidelity rewarded me quite handsomely. But that mallard, deliberately using me for bait. I got even with him, though. I made him take me deep sea fishing about a week later. Oh, did he get sick. Seasick. And I just stood there and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. Listen again next week at this same time for excitement and adventure. Just dial Candy Matson, Yukon two eight two zero nine. Heard tonight were Lou Tobin as Ayers, Harry Bechtel as Folger, and Jack Cahill as Cranston. Henry Leff as Inspector Ray Mallard, and Jack Thomas plays the part of Rembrandt Watson. The program stars Natalie Masters as Candy and is written and produced by Monty Masters. Sound effects were created by Bill Brownell and Jay Rendon. Eloise Rowan is heard at the organ. 
The characters in tonight's story are entirely fictitious. Any resemblance to actual people is purely coincidental. The program came to you from San Francisco. Dudley Manlove speaking. You are tuned for the stars on NBC. Hello, Yukon 28209. Yes, this is Candy Matson. National Broadcasting Company presents Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Hello? Oh, girl, this is Rembrandt. I've been trying to get in touch with you for the last three days. I've been smog-bound. What? I've been visiting an aunt of mine in Los Angeles, Ducky. A fate worse than death. <laughs> However, I am glad to know you're back. How are you feeling for long hair music, Dove? Mm, I can take it or leave it. Why? In this case, I hope you can take it. Ever hear of a gentleman named Eric Spaulding? The noted English symphony conductor? Oh, of course. I used to know him in London. He's here to conduct a series of concerts. Bully for him. I know where I can get him a baton wholesale. He needs more than a baton, Candy, dear. He needs help. That's why I'm calling you. What do you want me to do, look for the lost chord? You don't know how close to being right you are, girl. Anyway, he's going to drop by me place this evening. I wonder if you could come over, too. Well, I was going to hit the prone position early tonight, but if you really want me to be there, I'll do it. Splendid, Candy. Come for dinner, won't you? I just bought a new chafing dish, and I'm whipping up a tasty scraping of pasta rasson. Well, how interesting. It is. It's spaghetti a la Watson. Candy Matson, the girl all San Francisco claims to know personally. That's because she hits the front pages of the newspapers more often than the three bridges. Gate, who came in late, Candy makes a tidy little living by minding her own business. The business being one of private investigation. Take this deal with Rembrandt Watson and Eric Spaulding. It sounded innocent enough to start with. The clue here, a corpse there could make a very interesting story. One that Candy Matson can tell you about herself right now. What did the man say? A clue here, a corpse there? Well, he's almost right. The corpse came first, the clue later. I also ran across the most ingenious device ever dreamed up to cause a man to lose his job. And I managed to get a little culture on me, whether I wanted it or not. Because in the course of this little deal, I got better acquainted with Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven, even Cachaturian. Bless you. It all began by accepting Rembrandt's invitation that night for dinner and a meeting with Eric Spaulding. For the sake of the musician, I climbed into a gown that made music as I walked. It was cut trimly on the grace notes and called for a reprise every other bar. Then I put on my coda and went over to Rembrandt's place on California Street opposite old St. Mary's. Candy girl... Welcome to Menard Hill, Lamasere. Thank you, dear. Come in, come in. Breathtaking. Positively breathtaking. Thank you. You look gorgeous in that, uh, what is it, Candy? If you just stop and consider the thousands of man-hours put in by little worms all over mulberry bushes, you wouldn't ask that question. Oh, silk. Mm-hmm. Where's the maestro? Oh, Eric hasn't arrived yet. He'll be here shortly. What's his problem, Ducky? I haven't the slightest idea, but he seems terribly upset. 
His worry seems to concern itself with his concert tomorrow night at the opera house. These boys with the long hair and coattails to match, they're always worrying. I don't know how most of them manage to live so long. Oh, help yourself to the port, dear. I had some hors d'oeuvres, but Henry and the great Dane beat us to them. Henry, heaven. I haven't seen him in ages. How is he, dear? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, Candy. He's missed you terribly. I'll let him in for just a moment. Oh, no, 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 Rembrandt, I, I didn't mean that. He's missed you so, dear. Oh, Oh, Rembrandt, he's charging me. No, Henry, no. Oh, Rembrandt, help. He's got his paws all over my prow. Isn't that sweet? Such devotion. Candy adores you. Well, tell him to do his adulation from the floor with all four paws on it. Quick, Rembrandt, I'm becoming pigeon-chested. What a beautiful picture. Rembrandt. Mm. Oh, yes. Uh, Henry, down, sir. This instant. There we are. Now I know how that mud shoal in Chesapeake Bay felt when the big mole landed on it. Into the kitchen, Henry. Back to your side of beef. That's the lad. Oh, that must be Eric. Or another great Dane. Eric, dear boy, do come in. Thank you. Oh, what a charming place, Rembrandt. So bohemian. That's one word for it. Personally, I call it cluttered. Candy, dear, may I present Eric Spaulding, Eric Candy Madsen. How do you do? Really quite an honor, Mr. Spaulding. I've heard many of your European recordings. Is that a fact? Yes, I had a very good orchestra in London. Nice chaps all. Played well together. I used to know the producer on the Standard Hour. That way I became quite familiar with the playing of the San Francisco Orchestra. How do the two compare, Mr. Spaulding? That's like trying to compare the Atlantic Ocean with the Pacific. Both large bodies of water, but entirely different in characteristics. However, I feel the San Francisco organization would rate among the best in the world, with the proper conducting. And you feel you can give it the proper conducting? Most certainly. Mm, I see. Why don't you tell Candy about your innovation in music, Alec? I'm sure she'd be greatly interested. Oh, yes, I'm surely. It's nothing more nor less than applied showmanship, Miss Matson. I've always had the firm belief that music should paint a mental picture. I imagine the composers did, too. So I've made it a point to always include one number in my concerts where we play in fluorescent lighting. Oh, yes, I recall reading an article in Life about that. I've been severely criticized for it. I conduct with an illuminated baton. To me, the musical message is much better presented in that manner. The audience sits in the dark. It has a chance to interpret what the composer intended saying. Hmm, could be. I've been accused of everything from cheap theatricals to degrading the concert stage. But I'm sticking with it. I'm convinced the public appreciates what I'm trying to do. Uh, Rembrandt tells me you're bothered about something, Mr. Spaulding. Yes, I am. I'm an artiste, Miss Matson. I know only one thing, music. That's why I wish to speak to someone in uh, your line, investigating and that sort of thing. That sort of thing leads to money. I know. And I'll be very glad to retain you, if you can help me find out what I want to know. And that would be? Someone is trying to sabotage me, Miss Matson. The San Francisco concerts are critical stepping stones in my career. I've given two concerts, each time during the selection where we black out the lights. The orchestra, en masse has hit one foul, rotten chord. Well, didn't you get it straightened out in rehearsal? That's just it. It never happened in rehearsal. I've checked the score afterward. Perfect. I've talked to the orchestra personnel. They're more amazed than I. To say the least, it must be extremely embarrassing at a moment like that. Believe me, 
Words haven't been invented to describe such a feeling of mortification. The audience starts to titter, then laughs. By then, the whole thing has been shot to blazes. My reputation is at stake, Miss Matson. I see what you mean. I thought perhaps with your trained sleuthing instincts, you might be able to help me. My old friend Rembrandt here recommends you highly. Thanks, old friend here. You've got me interested, Mr. Spaulding. When did you say your next performance is? Tomorrow night at the Opera House. Tell you what. I don't know what your contract calls for, but whatever it is, we'll split the fee and I'll go to work for you. What? Why, that's preposterous. Isn't the future of your career worth it, Mr. Spaulding? Why, I... Very well. I think it's outrageous, but what can one do? Okay. Now, when do you rehearse for tomorrow night's concert? Tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Very well, I'll be there. Just one word of caution. Pay no attention to me whatsoever. Make like as if I don't even exist. Agreed. Oh, I'm so glad everything's settled. Now we can get to the spaghetti vassal. Me food is practically chafing at the dish. Let's have at the regular stuff, shall we? The spaghetti wasson was magnificent. Rembrandt has the green thumb for taking the most ordinary food, adding a bird's nest or two and a dash of some witch's potion and making it taste like ambrosia. Uh, there was only one drawback. For days after, you walked around like you had a red-hot barbecue pit in your stomach. I stopped off on my way home, bought a chronicle, completed the journey, and piled into bed. Then I read the paper, missed Kane, caught DeRusse, glanced at the radio column, and then concentrated on the musical section. There it was, Spaulding's concert for the following evening. The first movement from Brahms first, the Fountains of Rome, the Rienzi, so on and so forth, and, and for his blackout selection, Swan Lake. With that, I dozed off, and before I could pick up the remnants of a dream I'd had the night before, it was morning and I was dressing in on my way to the opera house. Just a moment, young lady. You're not with the orchestra. No, no, I'm here on official business for Mr. Spaulding. Oh, sure. Go right on in. I passed through the stage door and onto the stage itself. Just as I did, a little faraway thought started tickling the back regions of my brain. Spaulding, Spaulding. By a strange quirk, there was a gal who plays first flute in the orchestra named Spaulding. I worked my way around to where the musicians were unpacking their instruments. There she was, the gal herself. Hello there. Oh, hello. How are you? Fine, thanks. You don't remember me, do you? I'm Candy Matson. Oh, yes, the young lady detective. You used to drop backstage now and then to the standard broadcast. That's right. Nice to see you again. Thank you. What's this I hear about the orchestra falling on its face the last two concerts? It's an amazing thing, Miss Matson. We're at a complete loss of words for an explanation. I understand it's front-page news all over the country. And why not? A thing of this sort is news. Eric's fit to be tied, of course. I can't blame him. Incidentally, I just happen to think, isn't your name Spaulding, too? I beg your pardon? I said, isn't your name Spaulding, too? Why, yes, it is. We spell it differently, however. Oh, so? Yes. Eric spells his name S-P-A-U-L-D-I-N-G. I have no U in my name. Mm-hmm. You both have a decided British accent. Oh, you think so? I rather thought I'd lost mine. No, hardly. Uh, tell me, do how do the members of the orchestra feel about these numbers played under fluorescent lights? Well, it doesn't bother them. They think it's slightly silly, but they don't pay any attention to it. Each conductor has his own little idiosyncrasies. I see. Well, I hope you have a fine rehearsal, Mrs. Spaulding. Miss. Miss Spaulding. Oh, yes. Miss. You, um, you are going to be around for the concert this evening? 
I believe so. I find it becomes more interesting all the time. Something was phony with a gal, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I tossed it off and decided to think about that angle later. In the meantime, I ducked into a quiet corner of the wings and listened carefully to the whole rehearsal. Then it came time for the blackout number, Swan Lake. It went beautifully, without a hitch. At the finish, Eric mopped his moist brow and spoke to the orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. You all know what has happened in these particular spots. The rehearsal this morning has gone beautifully. I thank you. I hardly think I need to remind you that tonight's concert will be critical, to say the least. If we repeat what has happened in the past two performances, I shudder to think what will be said of me and you as an organization. Will you all please pay a special attention to the score this evening for my sake, as well as yours? That is all, and again, I thank you. With that, Spaulding dismissed the orchestra. I waited a reasonable length of time, then dropped around to his dressing room. The concertmeister was in with Eric, so I waited. And waited. Finally, he was alone. Or so I thought. Oh, Miss Madsen, uh, come in, come in. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Spaulding. I thought you were by yourself. Oh, a thousand pardons. Uh, Miss Madsen, may I present Baldo Raimondi, my arranger? Mr. Raimondi. A pleasure indeed. Well, there was something you wanted to talk about, Miss Madsen? No, no. Oh, that's all right. I, I'm just pushing off. <laughs> Do that, will you, Baldo? And uh, take care of that second bar after letter K. It should be an A-natural. Uh, no, Eric, not an A-natural. It should be A-flat. Ah, yes, yes, that's right. A-flat. Yes. I'm so upset. I... Well, take care of it, will you, Waldo? Uh, righto. I'll see you back at the hotel. Uh, very happy to have met you, Miss Madsen. Also, Mr. Ramone. Well? Well, yourself. I don't understand. Neither do I. Let's both get with it. Are you acquainted personally with any members of the orchestra here? Oh, in a vague sort of way. How vague would your friendship with the first Plutus be? How did you know about her? I didn't, but now you've told me, almost. What about her? I was hoping this would be kept quiet. She was my wife. I had a hunch it was something like that. Could she have anything to do with your lack of grace notes? No, not Nona. Nona? The former Mrs. Spalding. Well, we've got to start somewhere. She's as good a target as any. I'm afraid you're on the wrong scent, Miss Maxson. Nona and I had our differences. We split up. She came to America and joined the orchestra here in San Francisco. She's respected and admired. She wouldn't do anything to jeopardize her musical career, I'm sure. But she might yours. Have you cut up any old capers since you've been here, Mr. Spaulding? No, we haven't spoken. It's an unwritten rule we've both observed. Hmm. This has the same aroma Monterey has during the sardine season. Well, I'll keep plugging away. Good luck on the concert tonight. You need it. The hotel where Spaulding and Company made its headquarters was just a hop, skip, and a jump from the opera house. But I would have looked silly getting there that way, so I drove. A simple question produced results. Waldo Raimondi was in room 1812... Before I could ponder whether that was from the overture of the same number, I was there. Come in, please. Oh, hello. Uh, come in, won't you? Thank you. 
I hope I'm not disturbing you. Oh, no, no, not at all. Seems we have a music lover in our midst. However, don't you think Eric might resent this little visit? Why, you little... Cut it, Ramondi. You're lucky I only slapped your face. I'm here on business only. Get out of here. Not yet, small time. I want to have a little talk with you. Who do you think you are, walking in here and making demands of me? The name is Miss Matson. That doesn't mean anything to you, I'm sure, but I happen to be a private investigator. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't think that... You will forgive me, won't you? I'll call a meeting of the board and let you know. I've got a couple of questions to ask. Give me the right answers and we'll both save time. Gladly, if I can. How long have you been with Spaulding? Almost uh, 17 years. Did you know that the first flutist here was once his wife? Yes. We don't talk about it. Neither do we talk to her. What about this studied confusion that's occurred during the last two concerts? It's most incredible. None of us can understand it. No, none of us. Doesn't it strike you that a whole symphony orchestra just couldn't possibly go sour unless the whole symphony orchestra had agreed? Or unless the score was wrong. Oh, but that couldn't be it either. Both Eric and I have checked immediately afterward, and that leaves us... Nowhere. Exactly. I have only one further suggestion. And that would be... Get better acquainted with Nona Spaulding. What do you mean by that? You're a private investigator, Miss Madsen. Why not apply the tools of your trade? The whole thing was becoming as simple as hydrogen. Using my cool Sam Spade logic, I decided to do nothing until after the concert that evening. So I went home to my penthouse on Telegraph Hill, showered and slipped into something movie writers would have described as... comfortable? Then I called Rembrandt on the phone. Watson Studios. This is Candy Matson, Private Eyeball. How delightful. We both got to plug in. Yes. What's on your mind now? You, dear. How would you like to attend the Spalding concert tonight? Oh, Candy, I've heard music before. So have I. But this is more or less a command performance. I recognize the command in your voice. Very well. Shall I dress? It's customary, isn't it? I mean, how would you like me? In soup and fish? No, Ducky, I've seen your soup and fish. It's covered with soup and fish. No, just come as you are. Oh, candy. Very well. As you say, dress. I'll pick you up about 7.30. Splendid. Uh, where are we sitting? The diamond horseshoe? That's right. Backstage in the wings. I bustled about getting ready. As long as I was going to be backstage, I didn't have to get too fancy. So in practically nothing flat, I was out in the car and once again driving over to Rembrandt's place. He was ready, he jumped in, and we took off for the opera house. The carriage trade was arriving at the carriage trade entrance, so I found a place to park out in back, and then we went in, talked to Wally, one of the stagehands, and got two chairs on the left. Just at that moment, the concertmeister gave the cue for the orchestra to tune up. That was Spaulding's cue to float out from stage right and make his entrance. He carried more ham per pound than you'd find in a Chicago stockyard. He minced to the podium, bowed, scraped, and faced the orchestra. It all started nicely enough, even though the orchestra was playing as if it were sitting on eggs. First the Brahms, then Fountains of Rome. They took a bath in the first fountain, and it felt so good they went on to another. Then another, and they were through, through all the fountains. Now it was time for the production number. 
The lights dimmed. The fluorescent lights on the music stands came on. Spalding flipped a switch and his baton lit up. You could feel a tenseness come over the audience. And the orchestra started hatching its eggs. Eric gave the downbeat and Swan Lake was underway. Everyone seemed to feel that the worst was over. You could almost hear the snapping of spines as the audience relaxed and settled back in their seats. And that's when it happened. It had happened again. The most horrible sounding chord I'd ever heard. The audience stood up. This time there were no laughs, just a stunned amazement. The orchestra stopped playing and Spalding threw his baton on the stage and walked off into the wings. Slowly the orchestra followed. I was just as dumbstruck as the rest. Then I got my wits about me and ducked around to the rear. Come on, Rembrandt. To where, girl? Anywhere. I want to talk to people, find out what happened. Don't you know? They blew a king-sized clinker. Well, that was well established. It'll be heard around the world. But I want to find out how it happened. Uh Uh-oh. There's Spalding talking to Raimondi. I'm ruined, Waldo, through. Washed up. How can this sort of thing happen? How can it possibly happen? Oh, look, Eric, calm down. It's not as bad as you're making it out. I'm not making anything out. I'm facing the facts. I'm through. Do you suppose I can face the critics, the public, after three successive performances like this? Oh, there you are, Miss Matson. A lot of help you've been. You let it happen again. Cool off, Buster. <sighs> you can't avoid something happening when you don't know what that something is. This is a something that's never been written into the books. Or, wait a minute. Hasn't it? All of a sudden, I've got me an idea. Great heavens! By all the prophets, what's going on here tonight? You'll forgive my sudden departure. I intend finding out. We made like the cavalry going up San Juan. The scream had come from off stage over in the dressing room. That's where we headed. By the time we got there, a crowd had gathered. And there, in room 14, with her flute clutched firmly in her hands, lay Nona Spaulding. <laughs> Excuse me. Pardon me. How is she, Candy? She's not feeling well, Rembrandt. As a matter of fact, she isn't feeling at all. She's dead. This was the kind of development I hadn't counted on at all. An orchestra coming apart like wet tissue paper is one thing, but murder is another. That's where my friend Inspector Mallard comes into the picture. I made a call to headquarters, but he was out. So instead, a couple of his boys came over. I left the entire thing in their capable hands and tried to clear up a little unfinished business of my own. You still play the cello, Rembrandt. Strictly for me on amusement, Dove. Why? Well, you know music. Take a look at the score. Right about... about here. Oh, yes. This is just about where they hit that foul chord. That's right. Notice anything wrong? Let me see. This bar looks all right. Hmm, and so does this one. They didn't get past this point. Look carefully. Why, yes. Little indentations alongside the notes. Ever so slight, but there, nevertheless. 
The pattern is beginning to take shape, Rembrandt. And if you'll look again, you'll find these little irregularities throughout the whole score. Candy, you're right. Now's as good a time as any to find out if I'm right or not. Wally! Wally! Is that you, Candy? That's right. Do me a favor, Wally. When I shall now switch on the fluorescent lights, will you? Okay. Now hand me that score, Rembrandt. We'll place it on the music stand like this. Keep your eyes on this bar right here. Don't look away for one instant. Now, Wally. Okay. Watch now. There are the lights. What do you see? Candy. Incredible. That chord changed right before me very eyes. Why, nobody could play that. It has dissonance over dissonance. That's what you heard tonight. Keep watching. The regular lights again, Wally. Right, Candy. There. You see? Back to normal again. But you don't see the bad chord, do you? No. This is amazing. Most amazing. The copyist used a certain kind of ink that vanished under the fluorescent lights. And at that time, a whole new score appeared with that awful chord buried in it. Diabolical, isn't it? Yes, isn't it? Too bad you're so clever, Miss Matson. <laughs> Hi, Raimondi. I wasn't sure for a while, but when Mrs. Spaulding got it in the dressing room, I had my money on you. It's a shame your knowledge won't do you any good. You're not going to be able to use it. You see, here in my pocket, a very competent 38. Now move, both of you, quietly over to Eric's dressing room. You better do as the man says, Rembrandt. Oh, there you are, Miss Matson. I want to. Oh, no, you don't, Eric! Spaulding, you all right? Yes. Yes, I'm all right. Just nick me. Come on, Rembrandt. He's ducking around backstage. There he goes. He's trapped and he knows it. The cops are over on the other side of the stage. He's coming back this way. Rembrandt, the stage has been raised on the elevators. He's going to run right into that opening. Raimondi, look out! Raimondi! Ah! How do you feel, Spaulding? A little weak. Just hand me a spot of that brandy, will you? I shall be all right. Sure. Tell me, why was Ramondi gunning for you? Until tonight. I didn't know he was. All of a sudden, that name Ramondi means something to me. Here's your brandy. Thank you. Yes, Walter was a very promising violinist. Great things had been predicted for him until the summer of 1933. What happened? We were driving through Sussex when my car overturned. His left hand was badly smashed. Had to have the last three fingers amputated. That was the end of his career. First, he was bitter, wouldn't speak to me. Said it was all my fault. Little by little, I won him over. Then, because music was his world, I gave him a position of companion and librarian. He's been with me ever since. Yes, plotting your downfall. And very cunning, too. He waited all these years to pull the switch on his clever device. Why is that, Miss Matson? Your wife's bowling. Raimondi had it figured out that you'd attach all the blame to your ex-wife. Poor Nona. Gone. And Waldo, too. Yes. And all because that accident left a bigger scar on his mind than it did on his hand. Well, I'll see you, Spaulding. That was some concert tonight. 
It seemed to have just about everything. It was too bad about the ex, Mrs. Spaulding. She let her heart rule her head. She went to Raimondi's dressing room to make an overture, to perhaps make an effort to patch up her lost romance with Eric. She walked in at a bad time. Raimondi was applying the finishing touches to his phony score. There was an assortment of ink all over the table. At the time, it didn't mean anything to Nona, but during the performance, she discovered the same thing I did. After that bad chord, she rushed off stage, ready to apply the crusher to Waldo. He saw what she was up to and beat her to it with a window weight over the head. Well, like I've said many times, some of that music gets too deep for me. I think I'll just stick to something not quite so complicated. Something simple, enjoyable. Something you can understand. Like Bop, perhaps? Listen again next week at the same time. For excitement and adventure, just dial... Candy Metzen, Yukon 28209. Heard tonight were Hal Burdick as Eric Spaulding, Harry Bechtel as Waldo Raimondi, and Norma Tuart as Mrs. Spaulding. Jack Thomas plays the part of Rembrandt Watson. The program stars Natalie Masters as Candy and is written and produced by Monty Masters. Sound effects are created by Bill Brownell and Jay Rendon. Eloise Rowan is heard at the organ. The characters in tonight's story are entirely fictitious. Any resemblance to actual people is purely coincidental. Bill Walker speaking. The program came to you from San Francisco. Are tuned for the stars on NBC. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, Yukon 28209. Yes, this is Candy Matson. The National Broadcasting Company presents Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Before we commence tonight's Candy Matson story, it's a very great pleasure to welcome as our distinguished guest this evening the widely read radio columnist of the San Francisco Examiner, who conducts his own radio column under the title Day and Night with Radio and Television. Mr. Dwight Newton. Thank you, Dudley Manlove. Recently, I conducted a popularity poll to determine our readers' favorite radio program originating in San Francisco. Heading the list, and a top-heavy favorite, was your Candy Matson program. In behalf of the examiner readers who participated in the poll, I am happy to present this award, which reads as follows. 1950 San Francisco Examiner Favorite Program Award. This certifies that readers of the San Francisco Examiner have voted Candy Matson their favorite local radio program in a poll conducted by the underside writer of the column Day and Night with Radio and Television. Congratulations to all who participate on the Candy Matson program, to Monty Masters, who writes and directs it, and to you, Natalie Masters, the Candy Matson star. Thank you, Dwight Newton. We're doubly proud of this award tonight because next week's program will mark Candy Matson's first birthday. From all of us here at NBC in San Francisco to Dwight Newton the San Francisco Examiner, and most of all, you, the listeners, who've made this award possible, our very sincere thanks. We continue now with Candy Matson, Yukon 2, 8209. Just a moment, I'll be right there. How do you do? You you are Candy Matson, aren't you? Yes, that's right. And who are you? Willa Gray. Well, come in, won't you, Willa? Is there something I can do for you? I I don't quite know how to explain this, but it's my brother. Your brother? Maybe you've heard of him, Miss Matson. Gordon Gray? Why, sure, the songwriter? That's right. Who doesn't know him? He's written almost as many hit songs as Irving Berlin. What about him, Willa? Well, like many people I know, Gordon is a crime student for relaxation. He reads all the books, listens to all the radio programs, and naturally he's heard and read a great deal about you. Well, I'm flattered. When I suggested talking to you, he agreed immediately. Talking to me, Willa? What about? Well, it's his mental condition, Miss Matson. He's suddenly become extremely childish. All day long, he sits at the piano playing nothing but uncoordinated notes. Are you sure they're uncoordinated, or is it some new style he's trying to develop? Miss Matson, you're familiar with Gordon's work. Songs like Lazy Old June, The Tenderness of You. What he's doing now is just musical gibberish. How well I remember Lazy Old June. I was just a kid in high school at the time. Are you living with your brother, Willa? No, I'm not. Just as well, too. I don't think I could take it. Why do you say that? These foolish notes he plays. He says he's working on a thing to be called Symphony of Death. That someone is going to kill him. Why? Now you've got me interested. I hope so, Miss Matson. He won't talk to me. Every time I drop by, Gordon just sits at the piano, laughing horribly, and playing these kindergarten notes. As I said, he's a great fan of yours. Won't you go and just speak to my brother? Sure. I'll see him. Gordon Gray with a shattered mind. What a pity, if true. Think of all the jukeboxes that would have to settle for promissory notes. 
Candy Matson, San Francisco's well-known gal private investigator. Merely trying to get her penthouse on Telegraph Hill cleaned, and she walks into a stack of memories. Memories created by a songwriter named Gordon Gray. Symphony of Death. It never became a popular composition, but it will always be on Candy's all-time hit parade. A tune she'll never forget. Because it brought about a very strange chain of events and a fascinating finish to the entire story. Oh, and the in-between department? Well, here she is. The gal who never suffers from gaposis, Candy Maxson. When I went into the cold, hard world to make a living for myself, Gordon Gray was an American institution. That's when he wrote his never-to-be-forgotten The Rhapsody of You. I'd had no idea that Gray was in San Francisco. The last I'd heard, he was in New York, working on the score of a brand-new musical. So when his sister confronted me like that, naturally, I was caught a bit off base. She wrote Gordon's address for me, and like the rabbity little elf she seemed, ducked out as abruptly as she came. Then I dressed, drove over to an apartment house on Powell Street, just down from the family club. I pressed the button. It blew an ugly little noise back at me. I entered and went up the stairs to 221. The door opened. Yes? Yeah. Mr. Gray? Yes, that's right. I didn't call you on the phone. I thought I'd just more or less barge in on you. I'm Candy Matson. Candy Matson? Do come in. Oh, please, do come in. Thank you. So, my little sister finally got up enough gumption to call you. Yes, she came by this afternoon. She, we had quite a nice little chat. A nice chat? With my sister? Impossible. A little mouse doesn't know how to put one word after another. Oh, here, here. Do sit down, won't you? Place is a mess. I've got manuscript all over the floor, the high boy, the whatnot. Everywhere. Uh, highball, spot of sherry? Thank you, no, not right at the moment. As you say. <laughs> I beg your pardon? It's nothing, really. <laughs> I'm just thinking of my monstrous joke. I'm going to be killed, you know. Yes, so your sister said. Uh, uh, Do you mind? My sister, young... <laughs> She's young enough to marry a grandchild. Do you know what? She thinks I'm slipping my cable. Do you mind if I call you Gordon? I'd love it. Providing I can call you Candy. I'd despise myself in the AM if you didn't. Candy, you're just as delightful as I had you pictured. Thanks, Gordon. Now, frankly, what do you think? Are you uh, slipping your cable? Of all the idiotic... Of course not. Willa seems convinced you are. Willa's a mere babe, a suckling. What about this new thing you're working on, Gordon? This, this symphony of death. She told you about that, too, huh? That's part of my monstrous joke, Candy. Want to confide in me? Let me know what this joke is? I don't mind in the least. You have brains. Not many people have brains in this world, Candy. But you do. And because you have brains, I'm going to give you a challenge. Okay, let me have it. Oh, no. <laughs> the challenge will only come after he kills me. He? Who are you referring to, Gordon? <laughs> That's part of the challenge, Candy. I see. Do you really believe that someone's out to kill you? But of course. That's the delicious part of the whole thing. I'm going to be killed. It can't be avoided. That's why I'm writing my symphony of death. Oh. Oh, sure. Now I see. You're making fun of me, Candy. No, no, I'm not, Gordon. Really. It's just that, well, I've never met anyone who was happy about the prospect of getting knocked off. I don't mind, actually. 
I've lived a full life. I've seen the world, me lots of money. I've been wined and dined by people in all walks of life. My music will live after me. That's all I care about. Now I can understand. There, you see. That's why I like you. You have brains. Uh, shall I play my new composition for you? If you like. Very well. You will discover after I'm dead. It's all part of my monstrous joke. Excuse me. Pay no attention to the technique, Candy, my dear. My fingers aren't quite as supple as they used to be. <laughs> there, what do you think of it? Gordon, I think it's a great, monstrous joke. I knew you'd see it. It's part of the joke. You're really sharp. I knew it. That's part of the joke, and you can see it. You pay wonderful compliments, Gordon. Thank you. But don't you think this symphony of death is a complete departure from your usual style? From something like, well, the Rhapsody of You, for instance? Certainly, certainly. It's because of him. I had to write something dedicated to him, didn't I? Well, to scramble a dangling participle, who's him? The man who's going to kill me. <laughs> As I left, I tried to shake the picture of a cackling man playing one-fingered doodles on the keyboard, but I couldn't. The impression was indelible. When I arrived home, I was greeted by the sight of a familiar auto parked out in front. It was my number one boy, Inspector Ray Mallard of San Francisco Homicide. I invited him up to sit a spell and chew the fat. What's new, Cupcake? I haven't seen you for several days. Seems like weeks. Ha! Huh, a compliment. That means you're after something. I am not. Can't I ever say something nice without you misconstruing? Okay, okay. Compliment accepted. What brings you around here this time of day, Mellor, dear? Aren't you on duty? That's the trouble. I've been on duty for almost 48 hours straight. I have to take a little breather for myself. Working on a deal? Yeah, a hot one. No leads, no clues, no nothing. For a slight consideration, I might be inclined to help you crack the case, Sherlock. Uh, by the way, what are you working on? Nothing but hope and what's left of the bank account. You mean to say the great lady private eye is temporarily at liberty? I mean to say just exactly that. Well, if I'm any judge of your business ability, you've got enough money tucked away to buy the Philadelphia Athletics from Connie Mack. <laughs> what do you do with all your loot, Candy? Sew it in hair mattresses and sleep on it. <laughs> oh, excuse me a moment, Mallory. Sure, go right ahead. Oh, hello, Willa. I didn't expect to see you so soon. I hope you won't think me a nuisance, but I just had to see you. I understand. Come in. No, thanks. You've been to see Gordon. I just spoke with him on the phone and he told me. Yes, that's right. What do you think, Miss Matson? Very sad, Willa. How long has he been like this? Just a week or so. He flew in from New York and I could see the change in him right away. How long ago did he leave for New York? He left Hollywood for New York last month. Was he all right then? Oh, yes. Just fine. He seemed so happy. He just finished writing the music for the new show in the East. But when he got there, the backers, as they say in show business, told him the music was no good. He said he'd return to the coast and redo it. But instead of going back to Hollywood, he came here, took that apartment on Powell Street, and he's been holed up there ever since. Do you think being told his music was no good had anything to do with his present condition? Oh, 
I'm sure of it, Miss Matson. He's always been such a sensitive person. No, no, Willa. <laughs> I've known several people who snap momentarily under a terrific strain. Maybe it's not as serious as you think. But what am I going to do? First, he needs aid. Immediately. I know a Judge Conway here in town. I think he'll help you get Gordon committed to a sanitarium where he'll get the finest medical aid available. A sanitarium? Oh, no, Miss Matson, That would kill Gordon. It's either that or have him get progressively worse. I... I suppose you're right. Could you... I mean... Would you talk to Gordon? Explain what must be done? I don't think I'm capable. Sure. I'll do it, Willa. You sit tight and I'll call you just as soon as I speak with Judge Conway. Thank you. Thank you so much. I... I imagine I should inquire as to how much you charge for your services. No, forget it, Willa. Getting Gordon Gray back to normal will be pay enough. You're... You're just wonderful, Miss Matson. Goodbye. Poor kid. So helpless. Poor kid is right. I couldn't help overhearing. She's about 90% mouse. She and Gordon must have been poured right out of the same mold as far as sensitivity is concerned. Is that the Gordon Gray candy? The famous songwriter? That's the one. And he's cracked up? Mm-hmm. Downright chance. Well, thanks, pal. Just the sight of you has picked me up considerably. I'll be getting back to the grind. Nellie, dear, hold me tight for just a moment, will you? Sure. Don't let Gordon Gray get you down a cupcake. Well, it wasn't a very pretty sight. And I've got to face him again. Thanks for the hug, Mallard. I'll return it someday. Mallard released his grip and left. I snapped my ribs back in place and sealed myself for the ordeal ahead of me. It wasn't going to be easy, but it had to be done. So once again, I found myself ducking down Green Street, over Powell, across California, and down the roller coaster of a hill to Gordon's apartment. He answered the door, and I was met with just as much enthusiasm as before. Candy Matson, I was wondering where you'd been. You've been gone for ages, darling. Do come in. I've got a surprise for you. When did you get back from Europe? When did I get back? Oh... Just a day or so ago. Your letters were wonderful. I especially adored the one from Naples. What a time you must have had. Yes. Yes, quite a time, Gordon. How's the new symphony coming along? That's a surprise, my dear. It's completed. Long last, it's finished. To be perfectly frank, Candy, I, I think it's great. I've been in touch with Toscanini. He's going to give it its premiere performance at Carnegie next month. I've already sent him the revised manuscript. Can you picture it, Candy? A hushed crowd. Master wraps his baton. The orchestra comes to full attention. Then that magnificent, firm downbeat of Toscanini's and Symphony of Death is making its debut. First, the Allegretto. Then, the Molto Andante. The audience is at first inclined to scoff, to think that Gordon Gray could write serious music from lazy old June to Symphony of Death. Too much of a step, they'd say. Then, Toscanini glides into the conmoto. The audience tenses, not believing their ears. 
Little by little, they understand what Gordon Gray is trying to express. Then, as if it were not enough, Toscanini moves into the breathtaking finale. It soars, it moves, it transports everyone in Carnegie Hall into another world, and abruptly, Symphony of Death. Symphony of Death is over. The audience arises as one. They, they shout for Gordon Gray, the composer. History's being made. More shots for the composer. But Gordon Gray isn't there. Gordon Gray's dead. Because of him. Gordon, listen to me. <laughs> because of him. The world will have to be denied any further music from the pen of Gordon Gray. I said listen to me, Gordon. Hmm? Oh. What? I want to talk to you. And you've got to listen very carefully. You're sick. You need help. Your sister and I are arranging to have you sent to a home nearby. They'll have you on your feet in short order. Sent away? Yes. That means he will visit me sooner than I planned. Very well, Candy. Tell Willa to do whatever she thinks best. I won't give her any trouble. It's for your own good, Gordon. Believe me. I know. Candy, you never went to Europe, did you? You were here earlier this afternoon. Isn't that right? That's right. <laughs> you just went along with the gag. That's right, Gordon. Yes. Yeah. You'll be here sooner. Much sooner than I expected. Gordon Gray went into the other room and lay down on his studio couch. Face down. That's when I tiptoed out of the apartment. If only I could have peeked into the future, I'd never have left. Because that was the last time Gordon Gray was seen alive. I went home, fixed myself something to eat turned the radio on low and sat down with a book called That Frail Vessel, a book about the behavior of the human mind. Out of one corner of my ear, I heard it. It was the 10 o'clock news over NBC with Sam Hayes. And there it was. The body of Gordon Gray had been found in his apartment. The book clattered out of my hands and I sat there for a moment stunned, but only for a moment. In another second, I was driving over to pick up an old pal of mine, Rembrandt Watson. There was a good reason for it. Rembrandt studying to play the cello. On the way over, I noticed the headlines. The police had the net out for Gordon's sister, Willa. Rembrandt was home. He was agreeable to going to Gordon and Gray's apartment with me. And before you could bat an eyelash, providing your batting average was good, we were in said apartment alone. My word, girl. What a garish-looking place. It didn't belong to Gordon personally, Rembrandt. He was merely renting. He still doesn't deny the fact that it's garish. Candy, the truth now. Why did you want me to come to this Victorian mausoleum with you? Just a hunch, Ducky. Are you still taking cello lessons? Taking them? Girl, don't be ridiculous. I'm now giving them. Even better. <laughs> Just as I thought. The boys in blue haven't touched anything. The manuscript for Symphony of Death is still on the piano. Can you play single notes on the piano, Rembrandt? Well, I can try. Good. Run your hangnails over this. Hmm. Strange. This isn't music. 
Just a series of notes with no meter, phrasing, or regard for the proper time to the bar. Exactly. Play it just the way it's written. Very well. And call out the notes as you go along. I think I'm beginning to understand Gordon's symphony again. As you say, B, A, D, and for no reason at all is a rest candy. B, A, D, and a rest. Go ahead. E, G, G, and another rest. Mm-hmm. Then it goes D, E, A, D, and a long gap in the manuscript. You know what that spells musically, Ducky? Bad egg dead. Utter confusion. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I don't think so. As we say in the movies, continue on. F A G G E D. No timing at all. That spells fagged. So am I. However, it goes on like this. D E A F. Another rest, then B E E. Finish. What? Through. It's the poor finish. Let's see now. Bad egg dead. Fagged. Death. B. Can be love. If you're going to the notes of the musical scale, you could spell practically anything out of A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, even from a tune like Ragmop. But this means something. I know it does. Gordon told me it was going to be a challenge. What? Who's there? Don't be alarmed, Miss Master. It's only me. Willa. Willa, how did you get in here? Don't you know the police are looking all over town for you? Listen, look, I don't care. My brother's dead. I read it in the papers. How did you get in here, Willa? The cops are surrounding the place. I just walked in through the front door. Oh, wait till Mallard hears about this. Willa, you didn't kill Gordon, did you? No, Miss Madsen, I didn't. Honestly, I didn't. I believe you, Willa. Because I think I know who did kill your brother. You do? Tell me. Oh, please, tell me. Down at the hall of justice. Okay, let's go. Oh, Rembrandt, bring along that bust of Beethoven sitting on the piano, will you? Mm, pleasure, dear. I'll be glad to... <clears throat> Candy, this thing must weigh at least 15 pounds. Well, you're the only man in the group. Oh? Oh. <clears throat> Very well. Come along, bust. Hall of justice or likewise. <laughs> Candy, what are you doing here at a time like this? Can't you see I'm busy? Sure, I only want to see you busier. This is Willa Gray, remember her? Just the girl we're looking well, for. Well, save your breath, Mallard. Willa's innocent. She had nothing to do with Gordon Gray's death. Okay, you know so much. Who in tarnation did? Put that bust of Beethoven on Mallard's desk, Rembrandt. I was wondering how long I'd have to hold this thing. What in the name of Schenectady do I want with that? There sits your murderer. Andy, are you out of your head? No, it's so complex it's simple, Mallard. Gordon Gray works like a beaver for two months writing a musical score for a new Broadway show. He takes the score to New York. The producers tell him it's no good. It's the first time it's ever happened to Gordon. It does something to his mind. It broods. It comes to San Francisco. His mental condition becomes worse. So is yours. Where you're concerned, yes. But let me finish. Here... Take a look at this. Bad uh, egg dead. Fag. Deaf B. Okay, I give up. What does it mean? Bad egg dead. Gordon Gray is referring to himself. Fag. That means he had come to the end of his rope. His musical knowledge and creative ability were running dry. 
Gray had nothing more to live for. Okay, Miss Edgar Allan Poe. What does death be mean? Well, that had me some for a while, too. Then I got to looking at this bust of Beethoven standing on the piano. It seemed to dominate the entire room. Then I put two and two together and got Ludwig von Beethoven. B was an abbreviation of Beethoven. Beethoven was death. Death B. I don't get it. You will. Beethoven is going to hit an all-time low. The answer lies inside that plaster bust, I'm sure. Stand back, Mallard. I'm about to splatter a genius. Take a look. Good gravy. A small fortune in greenbacks. That's right. And a note, too, if these eyes don't deceive me. Congratulations, whoever you might be. You learned the true meaning of my symphony of death. You've also just executed my killer, von Beethoven. Now perhaps he knows how it feels to be cracked up, too. Thanks for participating in my little joke. My last charade. This is my entire estate. Put it to whatever good use you may see fit. Gordon Gray. <laughs> oh, Rembrandt, do me a favor. Take Willa outside. The poor kid's pretty badly shot. Certainly, Doc. Come along, young lady. I still don't get it, Candy. It's easy to fill in the gaps now, Mallard. Gordon's music was falling apart. He knew it. So he started swiping melodies from obscure Beethoven themes. But Gordon, with only his flair for writing popular music, couldn't grasp what Beethoven had originally intended. Consequently, the things he wrote were terrible. The more he copied, the more he realized that Beethoven was becoming an all-ruling obsession. It was Beethoven in the morning, Beethoven at night, Beethoven 24 hours a day until it drove Gordon completely out of his mind. That I can understand, but what's this joke he mentioned? Well, he was a great mystery fan. That's why he wrote this gibberish thing called Symphony of Death. A group of notes that spelled out bad egg dead, fag, death be, and so on. All part of his warped mental condition. Well, that makes sense. Except for one thing. How did Gordon Gray die exactly when he wanted to die? Mallard, dear, I now know there are some mighty strange things in this world. Even a completely sick mind such as Gordon has great powers of concentration. Gordon was like a, a captain without a ship. Like a man who's been married 50 years who suddenly has no wife. You probably won't believe it, Mallard, but Gordon Gray, knowing that his mind was shot, and knowing, too, that every last bar of creative music had been drained from his heart, his soul, willed himself to die. Fantastic? Not necessarily so. There are many stories about animals who have done the same thing. If animals can do it, why can't a human being with a so-called higher plane of intelligence do it, too? So that's what Gordon had done. Taken his life savings, healed them into a plaster bust of Beethoven, along with his last laugh note, and sat himself down to die. In Gordon's mind, Beethoven had killed him. I can understand why, too. For just before we left his apartment, I found another manuscript. I had Rembrandt run over it. 
note for note. It was the Moonlight Sonata, backwards. But in one respect, Gordon had outscored the old masters. He had completed his symphony of death, and Beethoven was in little pieces. That left him one up on another old master, a fellow named Franz Schubert. He'd left one entirely unfinished. The characters in tonight's story are entirely fictitious. Any resemblance to actual people is purely coincidental. Actors heard this evening were Phyllis Skelton as Willa Gray. John Grover was her brother, Gordon Gray. Jack Thomas as Rembrandt Watson. And Henry Leff as Inspector Ray Mallard. From the star of our program, Natalie Masters, and from her husband, Monty Masters, who writes and directs Candy Matson, and from the staff of the National Broadcasting Company, we wish to express our deep thanks and sincere appreciation to the San Francisco Examiner and Dwight Newton, radio columnist of the Examiner, for tonight's presentation, naming Candy Matson as the number one program in the San Francisco Metropolitan Bay Area. Listen again next week at the same time for excitement and adventure. Just dial Candy Matson, Yukon two eight two zero nine. The program came to you from San Francisco. Dudley Manlove speaking. This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. Hello, Yukon 28209. Yes, this is Candy Matson. baby on the tree. Uh, fix those dolly tracks. And look out for that cable, it's hot. Right, give me a hand Mallard, what in the name of the San Francisco Police Department are you doing up here on Telegraph Hill? Working, Candy, in the name of the San Francisco Police Department. Here? With these people who are making the movie? Yeah. How about that? Me, a lieutenant in homicide, and I'm assigned to riding herd on these Hollywood characters. Oh, it's better than murder. I'll take murder any day. <laughs> what are you doing around here? I did some shopping at Speedy's this morning while I was pinching the avocados. They told me that there was a Hollywood gang over by Coit Tower shooting some scenes for a movie with a San Francisco background. They might just as well have stayed in the studio. They brought their own lawns, prop trees, fake bushes, the works. <laughs> if it ever snowed up here on Telegraph Hill, they'd have brought some of that along, too. <laughs> You've never worked in Hollywood, Mallard. Only God can make a tree, but Hollywood presumes to improve on them. <laughs> what are they doing now? Uh, just getting ready to shoot a scene, I think. Oh. They've been rehearsing it all morning. Mm -hmm. What's it all about, do you know? As far as I can figure, it's a story about San Francisco right after the gold rush. Look at all the costumes. Very authentic. Looks like they'd been shipped around the horn. <laughs> By the way, Mallard, do you know who's in the picture? Some lush tomato named Cherry Dana and the Colorado boy, Buff Arnold. Arnold? D did you say Buff Arnold? That's right. Why? Oh, forgive me, Mallard, dear. I... I knew Buff Arnold when he didn't have a place to house in. He professed to carry a very warm torch for me. 
Aha. Uh -huh. So that's why you so casually dropped by. Oh. An old flame, huh? Don't be ridiculous. I didn't even know the guy was here, let alone stealing pictures. A likely story. <laughs> All right, quiet, please. Let's have quiet. Quiet. This is a take. All set, Mr. Dix. We're ready. Good. Okay, Cherry, we'll roll this one. Take a chance on it. Just remember to keep up against those trees. We don't want any shots of those modern buildings below the hill. Oh, remember, Red. Where is my old pal, Buff Arnold Mallard, dear? By me. Judging by what's been going on, he's not in this particular scene. Mm -hmm. All right, stand by. Roll him. Scene 47, take 10. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Cut, cut. Oh, where's that coming from? Out on the bay, Mr. Dix. A fine thing, a present-day steamer whistle in an 1850 picture. Hold it. Ames. Yes? Let me know when the fool ship is tied up. We won't shoot the scene until it's docked. Yes, sir. Oh. Darn it, I was hoping I'd see some action. Well, I'll give you some action. Come on, walk around with me, Candy. I'll show you all the sights. Sights like what, for instance, Mallard? Oh, all the lights they brought up here. I must have a thousand of them. Undoubtedly to wash out the wrinkles on the leading lady's face. And talk about props. It must have taken a whole freight train to get them up here. Oh, I have to have them. Uh, uh, for instance, look, uh, right up there. Hmm? Where, Mallory? Uh, up, up there, above. In that tree, hanging by their necks. <gasps> oh, Mallard! <laughs> Don't jump like that, Cupcake. Oh. They're only dummies hanging from those ropes. Three of them, they, they look so realistic. Well, I must admit, they really do. I understand they use them in a scene where they recreate a lynching in Portsmouth Square. Recreate, did you say? Yeah. Maybe you're right. Take another look, honey bun, a good look at the one in the middle. What are you trying to... Fry me for lard. That one in the middle is no dummy. You're no dummy either, boy of mine. How many times have you looked up there? Well, just a couple of times, but the last time I looked, the one in the middle wasn't an ex-human being. With that, I toss the whole thing in your lap, Mallard. I promote you back to homicide. Oh, why didn't these characters stay in Hollywood? She's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Cluttering up our lovely Telegraph Hill trees with gently swaying corpses. Come on, Mallard. Let's give the director a slight touch of apoplexy. The National Broadcasting Company presents Candy Matson. Yukon 28209. Funny how sometimes when you're lazy and want to do nothing except live the good, pure life, trouble, trouble comes up and belts you over the head with a vengeance. Well, that's the way it happened to me. I'd just finished a deal. It took me three weeks to crack. I made some good money out of it, banked it, and sat back to relax. But when I heard about the movie company on location on the other side of the hill, my curiosity got the better of me. As of that moment, my contemplated relaxation was at an end. Period. Paragraph. I literally walked right into trouble because there was Mallard and cut down. Okay, Mr. Dix, take a good look at him. You recognize the gent? I recognize him, yes, but I don't know him. He was one of the extras we used in a scene yesterday. Did he come up from Hollywood with you? I'm pretty sure he didn't. I think he was hired here locally. <laughs> Wait a minute. Who's this young lady? I don't want any outsiders in on this. Don't fret your little head, Mr. Dix. Aside from being a material witness, she's a well-known private investigator. Ah, oh, excuse me. I didn't know. That's all right. No need to apologize. Some of my best friends are movie directors. Uh, who would keep the roster on your personnel? My assistant, Bill Ames. Is he around? Well, I'm right here, Lieutenant. Oh, good. 
Can you give us any dope on this fellow? Oh, golly, uh, I'm afraid not. I've seen him, but I wouldn't know his name from Adam. How about the payroll? When do you pay off the extras? Yeah, that's a thought. We pay off at 5 o'clock tonight. Why don't we come back then, Mellard? We can check off the names against the pay vouchers. There's one thing extras like to do, and that's get paid. The name that doesn't show up is our friend the corpse. Okay, we'll let it go like that. What do you pay off? Room 873, Montfair Hotel. Make sure everybody's there, unless they want a little trouble thrown at them. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Dix. You can go on with your shooting now. Uh, no, no more today. It's too unnerving. Ames, knock it off. Call will be for 8 o'clock tomorrow morning sharp. Right, Chief. Uh, break it up, everybody. 8 o'clock tomorrow morning in costumes. And that means 8 o'clock, understand? You mind waiting here for a moment, Candy? I want to put in a call to the coroner's office for a wagon. Sure, that's all right. Go ahead. Good. It'll only be a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Dix, pardon me. Yes? Can you tell me where Buff Arnold is staying? What uh, What do you want with Buff Arnold, young lady? I used to know him when he was playing bit parts in Hollywood. Oh. Did you uh, work in Hollywood? I did a little time down there, sitting around in agents' offices. You know, uh, you're a sharp little cookie. <laughs> Say, all of a sudden, I've got an idea. I'll bet. <laughs> no, no. On the level, believe me. I have a small part coming up that'd fit you to a tee. Good-looking gal, wise, supposed to work in her father's store selling supplies to the miners. Can you uh, act at all? I used to shoot a fairly sharp mess of dialogue. Do you live close by? Right over there, one block, penthouse on the top. Hmm, all the better. As soon as your policeman friend removes the deceased there, uh, why don't we go over to your place and uh, look at the script? You know something? I've got an idea that's the idea you had the idea about. Okay, I'll look at the script. But for your information, Mr. Dix, I'm interested only in playing a part in your picture. Mallard came back, and I told him what had developed with Dix. He shot me a look that had more question marks in it than a government income tax form. I assured him I could handle the situation, and he left with the body, still clad in its 49er prospector's outfit. Dix issued some final orders, took me by the arm, and we strolled over to my place. Charming, but positively charming. Thank you. What a gorgeous view. How long have you lived here, Miss... <laughs> now, isn't that silly? I don't even know your name. Matson, Candy Matson. Candy Matson. Never have I heard a name match a personality so completely. <laughs> I'm Reginald Dix. Um, just call me Reg. As you say, Reg. Uh, would you like a drink? Oh, splendid. Soda highball? I think I can scrape one together. Ah, this is absolutely enchanting. I'm going to ask to make all my pictures in San Francisco from now on. I don't think you'd go wrong. Uh, of <laughs> course, it'd be a little rough if you were making a picture with an Indian background and needed shots of the Taj Mahal and the Himalayas. Oh, simple. I'd change it to the Ferry building and Twin Peaks. <laughs> Very good. Here you are, Reg. Ah, thank you. I can use this after that messy discovery up there on that tree. Well, here's to crime. Uh, that's a charming toast. Now then, about this part you were speaking of, I don't even belong to the Screen Actors Guild anymore. Oh, mere detail. I'll call the studio tonight and have them arrange your membership. As simple as that. You know, I think if some of your bright boys got together, you could win the war in Korea without half trying. Oh, let's not be snide, my dear. <laughs> oh, excuse me a moment. Someone at the door. Uh, certainly. Whoever it is, though... Uh... 
Send them away. Yes, Master. Hi. Hi. But now that we've established our highs, is there something I can do for you? I'm Cherry Dana. Is Mr. Dix here? Oh, why, yes. Uh, would you wait here, please? I will not wait here. I want in. Now, just a minute. There you are, Ed. You have a short memory, haven't you? Cherry, what are you doing here? Uh, I'm having a conference. So I see. I hate to mention it, but this happens to be a private home, Miss Dana. I'll have to ask you to leave. Don't be boring. You lured my director up here, and I'm going to see that some little local wench doesn't put the squeeze play on him. Why, you pampered brat, get out of here right now, or I'll show you how a local wench can back up words with action. Oh, now hold on here, both of you. Cherry, I resent this intrusion just as much as Miss Matson does, I'm sure. I'll bet. What about me? You said you were going to drive me back to the hotel. Very well, it slipped my mind. I'm sorry, Candy. I dislike scenes of this sort. We'll discuss our business uh, later. Good. I find now that I'm extremely interested. Good afternoon, Miss Dana. I'll see you later. I was so mad I was boiling. If I'd been a thermometer, Quicksilver would have been streaming out of my ears. I did the most natural thing, took a shower, and little by little I simmered down. Actors and actresses are like anybody else. Most of them are darn nice people just trying to make a living, but one ham, like Cherry Dana, can ruin the picture. Just as I was getting dressed, the ferry building siren blew its top, indicating 4.30. I had to step on it if I was going to be at the Montfair at 5 in time for the payroll sequence with the extras. So I stepped on it and found myself in a minor mob scene outside room 873 at the Montfair Hotel. Mallard spotted me, grabbed me by the arm, and took me inside the room. I really didn't expect to see you, Candy. Hmm? Why not? I thought perhaps you were discussing contract terms with Dix by now. Big Hollywood star and all that. Oh, Mallard, cut it out. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as I call out your names, step up fast and sign the voucher. Anderson, Robert, Apperson, Lou, Bennett, Bert, Beverly... I studied the faces as they stepped by the cashier's table set up in the room. They were all types. Anyone could have been a, a villain, a dance hall girl, a hero, an ingenue, or just plain extra. The roll call droned on in the background. The whole thing took about ten minutes. And suddenly, we were alone. Ames, the assistant director, the girl who had done the actual paying, Mallard, and myself. Well, that's it. Who's missing, Ames? You're in for a bit of a shock. How do you mean? Nobody's missing. Everybody listed on our payroll, checked in, and was paid off. What? That's right. Did you recognize every person who had been paid off? I'm pretty sure I did. Well, this is a fine kettle of nothing. We have an extra who's working in the picture, and yet he isn't. So he ends up hanging by his neck from a tree on Telegraph Hill. Who was the Joker? The Joker, the one you can play wild. Are you sure they're all paid? Well, positive. Double-checked with their guild cards and signatures. Well, isn't this cute? Oh, excuse me, please. Hello? Yes, this is Ames. Oh, 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 yes, Cherry. What? He's what? Great Scott. What's the matter, Ames? What is it? You're white as a sheet. Dix. He's just been found shot to death in his room.
From San Francisco, the National Broadcasting Company is presenting Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Reginald Dix, well known Hollywood director, shot dead in his hotel room. We were looking for developments. We got them, but not the kind we expected. Mallard led the way up to the suite that Dix had been occupying on the top floor. There was a mob around the door, and my boy Mallard soon dispersed them and instituted some semblance of order. Dix was sprawled out on the balcony overlooking the bay, and an ever-widening pool of blood showed that he'd been hit in the chest. Cherry Dana was pacing the room, smoking a cigarette. Ames stood in the middle with his jaw flapping. And who should be in the room, too, but my old pal from my days in Hollywood? Buff Arnie. Candy. Candy Manson. What a place for a reunion. Yes, isn't it? How are you, Buff? Ill. Terribly ill. If I have to step into the other room, I hope you'll understand. Reg was a great friend of mine. Sure. Sure, let's go in the bedroom. Uh, You look sort of green. Mm. Besides, I have a few questions I'd like to ask you, Buff. It's a deal. Anything to get out of here, let's go. Wait a minute, Candy. Who is this guy? Buff Arnold Mallard, the fellow I was speaking about. Where were you going? In there, he doesn't feel too good. The closest he's ever been to blood is a bottle of ketchup in color. Okay. Don't let him out of your sight. I have a flock of questions and need a flock of answers. As you say, Miller, dear. And don't get carried away yourself. This the bedroom? Yeah. Well, Buff, you seem to be doing all right. Mm, a lot different than when I knew you in Hollywood, Candy. You look swell, Buff. Too darn swell. Hmm? What do you mean? You bring back too many memories. You look mighty good yourself, Candy. You're no longer a plump little kid just out of high school. You're downright pretty, gal. In the good old days, I'd have jumped through hoops to hear you say that. Got any hoops handy? I'll say it again. No soap. Maybe we could revive some of those memories, Candy. Not a chance, Buff Boy. Things have changed. Hollywood and everyone in it, including you, are a part of a dim, sad past. And instead of just plain Buff, that's a rebuff. Very cute. I haven't heard the gag pull since yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me, did you hear about the body that was found on Telegraph Hill this morning? I sure did. Now, poor Reg. I told him this picture had a jinx on it before we left the studio. Little things have happened right from the start. Like what? Well, in the first place, I wasn't even supposed to be in the picture. They're going to give it to some new kid as a build-up. A week before the first day of shooting, he up and disappeared. He hasn't been heard from since. Then they shoved me into the breach. Then the assistant director tripped and fell off a catwalk, broke both legs. He had to be replaced. Anything else, Buck? Yeah. About that time, Jerry Dana whipped herself into a batch of temperament and walked off the lot. Held up production a week. Then the luggage for San Francisco was rerouted somewhere else. Never has caught up with us. Now the body this morning and Dick's just now. Certainly sounds like a jinx. By the way, how do you and the great Cherry get along, Buck? Hmm? Fine, fine. I try not to see her except on the set. Come here, Candy. Just let me hold you in my arms once, just once. I want the feel of someone who's truly genuine. You're still just a little boy, aren't you, Buff? Mm. Okay, Arnold, I'd like to, uh... Well, pardon me. 
I hate to break this up, uh, but I want to talk to you, Mr. Arnold. That was a fine time Mallard picked to walk in. And then I got to thinking, maybe it was a fine time. He was due to have a little fire set under him. As I walked out into the other room, the boys in blue had arrived, and they were swarming all over the place. Ames was no longer present. Neither was Cherry Dana. I wasn't going to give Mallard the satisfaction of an explanation, so I eased out the door and went down to the lobby. I asked where Ames was staying and went back up to his room, 672. A knock on the door produced results. Just a moment. Oh, Miss Matson. Uh, something you wanted? Yes. May I come in? Why, I... Yes. I was just lying down. This thing about Reg has knocked me for a complete loop. It seems to be quite a shock to everybody. You've been with Reginald Dix for a long time, haven't you, Ames? Well, off and on, yes. A good number of years. How about La Dana? Cherry? Hmm. Oh, I've known her extremely well, even before she became a top-flight star. Can you give me any idea who might have had it in for Dix? If you can, you better spill. The truth will come out sooner or later, Ames. It always does and things of this sort. I've only one little thing I can tell. I've already told it to your lieutenant friend. Oh? And what's that? As I got back from Telegraph Hill, I dropped by Reg's suite. Wanted to talk about tomorrow's shooting. As I drew near his door, I heard loud arguing. Arguing? Who were the opponents? Reg and Cherry Dana. Mm-hmm. And what were they arguing about, Ames? You. So that's it. Tell me, is Cherry the kind of woman who would turn killer on an impulse? It's hard to say. She has a terrible temper. Mm-hmm. Does Buff Arnold fit into the picture in any way? I don't know. He's a sly one, that Arnold. He plays his cards in strictly a commercial manner. May fit into the picture. He and Reg were never too friendly. I see. Well, thanks, Amesy. I'll leave now. And You'd better lock your door. The way things are going, you might wake up to find yourself dead. <laughs> I went up to Cherry Dana's suite, but I drew a blank there, no answer. So I went back to the scene of the murder, Dix's rooms on the top floor. Mallard was just leaving. He shot me a look that would have knocked out a North Korean tank at a thousand yards and started to brush on by me, but I would have none of it. Now, just a moment, boy blue. Come on back to that over-21 level. Just because Buff had his arms around me is no sign we were playing a scene from Romeo and Juliet. I don't think I've seen that close a grip even in professional wrestling. Oh, cut it out. What'd you turn up in there? Anything at all? No, not a thing. Can't even find the murder weapon. Got any ideas? Lots of them. We've already taken Miss Dana into custody. I had a hunch it was leading in that direction. Uh, uh, incidentally, did you ever hear of a Christopher Seema? He's been a bookie around town here for several years. Christopher Seema? No, can't say I have. Why? He was the boy who was hanging from the tree. Oh. According to our files, he dabbled in everything from gambling to blackmail. Seema... That, that name rings bells somehow, Mallard. Uh, one other thing. This isn't personal, you understand. Yeah. But stay away from Buff Arnold. We've got our eye on him, too. Little things were suddenly clicking way back in my mind. Awfully vague, but the old processes from years before were coming to life ever so slowly. 
Mallard had work to do, plenty of it, down at the Hall of Justice, work in which I was included out. I went outside on California Street, watched him get into a squad car with two of his men, and I waved him a goodbye. That was when I had another idea. Dix's suite. Cops were through with it. The body had been removed. But I had a hunch that was the key to the situation. Knowing the manager of the Montfair, it was no trouble at all to get a key to Reggie's suite, and that's where I headed, up to the top floor. I let myself into the darkened room, closed the door behind me. And with the lights of the city way below seeping through the balcony window, I found a place in back of the settee and sat down to wait and think. The balcony window being opened, the roar of the city traffic underneath came gently through and helped my thinking. And that's when it hit me. Seema. Several years before I had served my term in Hollywood, there was an actress named Vivian Seema. The same face as that of Cherry Dana. Now the clouds were beginning to lift... And at the same time, the door opened in the suite and the silhouetted figure of a man entered the room. Blast the luck. Okay, Buff. Relax. What the... This is Candy. Come on over here by the settee. Hurry. I'm expecting company. What are you doing here, Candy? You've got the wrong page of the script. That's my line. What are you doing here, Buff? Honestly, you've got to believe me. I, I left my lighter here this afternoon. I was afraid the police would find it. Naturally, I can't afford any bad publicity. It ruined my career. I believe you, Buff. You always were fond of that career, weren't you? Don't answer. Just keep quiet. What's up? A guy named Seema, if I'm right. Who's this? Reginald Dix didn't like him. Wait a minute. I think I hear someone coming along the hall. The door slowly opened and closed again. The dim light from the hall showed the form of another man. Then the dark figure moved slowly but surely across the room. It stopped for a second or two, as though listening for something. Then moved again to the balcony, out onto the balcony, and... Whoever it was grabbed the ledge above, hoisted his feet up under the iron grillwork, and hung over the city. That's when I acted. Okay, Ames. Stay right where you are, in that position. What? You think I'm a fool? Candy's out on that ledge. He's ducked around the outside on that ledge. I'm a fool. Quick, Buff. Go down the hall and get out on the fire escape. Cut him off. Okay, what are you going to do? Go out on that ledge after him. You better come back, Ames. You're cut off at both ends. Oh, no, I'm not. Not with this gun I've got. That's the same gun you killed Dix with, isn't it? Very clever hiding it up on this ledge out here. No wonder Mallard and his boys didn't find it. Look out there on the city, Ames. One misstep and you go off into space. Think it over. You better come back. Not on your life. I'm coming after you. I'm down at the other end, Candy. Good. Now we've got him. Yes. Yes, you have. Obviously, this is the end. Perhaps you don't know what it is to love. Perhaps you don't know what it is to be scorned. I do, painfully so. This is the end, but I'm not going to go alone. You're going with me, Miss Matson, like this. No, no, the recoil, it'll knock you right out of the neck. Oh! Just a matter of jealousy. 
Is that right, Candy? That's right, Nellie, dear. The same thing you developed when you walked in on Buff Arnold and me. Okay, okay, so I was burned up. Tell me more. It was the name Seema that did it, Mallard. Uh, do you know what that is? All right, I'll play quizzies with you. What's the name Seema? Seema is Ames, spelled backwards. Uh-oh. You see, that was Ames' real name. At, at one time, he had married Cherry Dana under the name of Seema. When she began to be big in pictures, she divorced him, but he carried the eternal torch. Silly, she wasn't worth it. Of course not. Because she collected men. Reginald Dix, not because she loved him, but because she was fading in pictures and because Dix was the only one who could keep her in front of the public. Logical. But what about the Seema hung up on the tree on Telegraph Hill? Uh-huh. There we have the plot. The Seema up in the tree was Ames's brother, a ne'er-do-well. The night that Ames arrived in town here, he looked up his brother, got a bit tight, and told him what he'd done. Caused the original leading man to disappear, shoved the original assistant director off a platform, breaking his legs. In general, did everything he could to sabotage the picture. Then he pulled the strings to get himself named as assistant director so he could be near Cherry. Love and jealousy. Mallard, I'll get to that in time. Cherry had vaguely promised that she'd remarry Ames. When he saw his own brother was going to blackmail him, he went crazy. That's when he strung him up with the dummies in the trees. From there, it was just a step to knock off Reginald Dix and have a clear track for himself. I'll go back to what I said to begin with. Why did these characters from Hollywood have to come up here to San Francisco and louse up our scenery, as well as our police department? Oh, to heck with your police department. That's the last time I'm going to climb around a ledge hundreds of feet in the air. Not so strange. Buff Arnold was out on that ledge, too, wasn't he? Oh, Mallard, sometimes you make me... That reminds me. I have a date tomorrow night. Sure. With Buff Arnold. No, no. That's tomorrow morning. I'm driving him down to the railroad station. Date for tomorrow night? With you, Mallard, dear. We're going to see a Roy Acuff movie. Oh, Candy. Roy Acuff. Monarch of all the cowboys. Yeah, monarch of all the cowboys. I'll see him with you. And if that isn't love, I don't know what is. Listen again next week at this same time. For excitement and adventure, just dial... Candy Matson, Yukon 28209. Heard tonight for Hal Burdick as Reginald Dix, John Grover as Ames, the assistant director, Mary Milford as Cherry Dana, Kurt Martell as Buff Arnold, and included in the cast was Ken Langley. Henry Left plays the part of Lieutenant Ray Mallard. The program stars Natalie Masters as Candy and is written and directed by Monty Masters. Sound effects are created by Bill Brownell and Eloise Rowan is heard at the organ. The characters in tonight's play were entirely fictitious. Any resemblance to actual people is purely coincidental. Tonight's engineer was Clarence Stevens. The program came to you from San Francisco. Dudley Manlove speaking. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.